Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, where this week I, Steve Norman, am joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. And nobody else at all. Mm, that's it. It's just us two. Dynamic duo. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, yeah. No one playing Gooseberry or third wheeling or anything. I mean, <laughs> why, why make it a threesome when us two are this good looking? Yeah. Well, we should we explain why that it's just you and I today? You, no one else. you do all the logistics for the podcast. I just turn up on a Monday, so you can explain why. Shall I explain? Yeah. Okay. So we send out like a um, a round robin email asking people to chip into episodes like three months in advance. We sort of send this newsletter around, and you can sign up to any. And because this is the week after Civil War, uptake was minimal. So I thought, you know what, Steve. You and me, we've never done a whole podcast together with no one else. I think this, so, I think this is like the, the fail-safe, hitting the fail-safe switch in case somebody ever backs out on us at the last minute. Yeah, This yeah. is like a practice go to see if we can actually do it as two people. <laughs> so this is, I'm sure, if this is yeah. shit, it won't, it won't happen again. And what we'll do if somebody drops out at the last minute is just not do one. Not do one, yeah. If this goes yeah. really well, then you know, all the guests can just piss off. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that, exactly. If it goes really well. If it's well. like the best one we ever do, we're never having guests on again, ever. <laughs> mm. Well, I don't know if that will actually happen. I'm sure uh, we could have got someone to pitch it. Brooke is usually um, quite generous with his time and offers to fill in every now and again. In fact, he filled in on the Civil War episode itself because we double-booked someone. So I'm sure we would have today. But yeah, this is like practice in case we... I was going to say emergency. That's a bit overselling yeah. it, isn't it? Really, it's not emergency. No, but, it's a fallback. A fallback. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so anyway, we've we've brought back triple bill for this one because nobody's releasing films at the moment while Civil War's still fresh in everyone's mind. Um, None that I wanted to no, see anyway. No, nothing any good. And yeah. um, so we'll be going. We'll be going with triple bill. We've got some listener questions and other bits and pieces. We're not going to do a quiz um, because it's not really going to work with just the two of us. But what we have got is after I won the quiz last week, <laughs> Owen Hughes's um, fantastic and in-depth review of Spice World movie. <laughs> yeah, way to big that one mm. up on the way in. This is this is pre Beckham posh spice as well. Victoria Adams. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Victoria Adams and Jerry Halliwell, who is credited as Geraldine Halliwell. Geraldine. I don't think she's ever been called Geraldine. She don't look like a Geraldine. 
She doesn't. Yeah, she yeah, says Gerald, it looks like Jerry. Yeah, the only Jerry I can think of is Dawn Vicar Frank. Yeah, Vicar Dibley. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Mm. A bit different. It is. Okay, so first of all, uh, Spice World is almost 20 years old. That makes me feel old. It's nearly 20 years since the Spice Girls were somewhat relevant. That really does make you feel old. Mm. 20 years. 1997 this came out. And it is very 1997 in the way it looks, in the comedy, everything about it. It, Um, Comedy or attempted comedy? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know how to describe the film, actually. I don't know how to... It's not a musical. It's got musical bits in there, but it's not a musical. It's not a comedy because it's just... Well, I suppose, yeah, maybe the closest thing is a comedy in terms of genre. But it's got no story to it. There's no plot. So it's not like a sort of... It's not a sketch situation. Aren't they trying trying to get to the gig in it? Essentially, that's it. That's all. I remember there being being the Spice World bus. Spice Girls yeah, bus, and there's a bomb on it at some point. Doesn't it get a, doesn't it get a bit speed esque at some point? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it gets very meta towards the end. That's what I was going to say. Is but if I don't know, if it's it's knowingly meta, but it does seem a bit meta at some point. Yeah, it was it was very like attempted at, uh, an attempt at being quite clever. Right. Now this is a sentence you will never hear in a film uh-huh. podcast again or a film cast before a uh, film podcast before this Spice World the movie is meta <laughs> that, yeah. is, that is a term that will never be used by anyone <laughs> reviewing films ever it's um when i say meta <laughs> what i mean is there's a bit of it that tries to be quite clever and it's not really it's just not but it i mean yeah so you're right the 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 plot if you that you can describe it as such, is boiled down to the Spice Girls being chauffeured around in a big fuck-off double-decker bus painted like a Union Jack, and they're being uh, driven by Meatloaf. Wow, of course they are. Yep, and Richard E. Grant is their stressed-out manager as they try to get to a gig or prepare for a gig. They do a sort of tour um, before their big show at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, That's it. That's your story. Mm. Yeah, it's not. It's not really one for the you know Academy Award screenwriters guild. Four, um, four questions mm-hmm. that I've just thought of. Twenty years ago, who's your favourite Spice Girl? Okay. Now, who's your favourite Spice Girl? I don't think I have one now. I kind of think maybe Jerry because she's the only one who hasn't really had any success. Post Spice Girls. Mel C's done nothing. Yeah, but she was in the charts. Like she did a song with Brian Adams for a while. Yeah, and that was it. I think she did something else, but she's like, she had moderate success post Spice Girls. And then Scary Spice has had a troubling relationship with Eddie Murphy. That's all she's Uh, done. I'm classing that as a moderate success in the circumstances. I mean, uh, so that that, that's two of the questions. But isn't she like a judge on some TV show now? Was it The Voice or was possibly? It like... I don't, I don't yeah. know. Um, if you had to, if, uh, the, out of the out of the five spices, uh-huh. which is the best actress? Um, <laughs> Jesus. Well, none of them. None of them if, can act. For shit. If you had to cast one of them in a, a role. 
which and you had to pick one, not picking one is not an option. Which one would you pick? What's the role? Give me a role. Um, Let me think on this. Right, let's let's think. It's, we're doing a remake. We're doing a remake. What's the film? What are we remaking? And who are we recasting? Um, right. Let's have a think. <laughs> it doesn't thing. have to be this challenger. Right. <laughs> we're, say we're recasting the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're picking a new Black Widow. Hmm. Well, in the which case... Scojo yeah. jo don't want it anymore. Yeah. Who, who we... Jerry, probably. Yeah? Yeah. Jerry's got the curves, the red hair. She's probably a bit feisty. I reckon she could do that role in a weird, twisted, alternative universe. <laughs> and if you were stuck on an island and killing yourself wasn't an option, for the rest of time you can only watch one film and you have to watch it at least once a week while you're on this island. This... Mm-hmm. Um, Whatever that awful FIFA movie was called. Oh, God. United Passions. Or, no. or Kill Key. <laughs> um, oh, Jesus Christ. It's shooting myself. No, I told I'm you, not... you can't kill yourself. No. Like, you, you're, you're, you're not immortal because you uh-huh. die of old age, but you, you can't kill yourself. But you have to, And you're stuck on this island forever and you have to watch one of these films once a week. But only one. Spice World. Jesus. Spice World is the one. I tell you. I tell you for why. So there's a side plot in this. Well, I, I'm, again, I hesitate to call it a side plot because it suggests there's a main plot. But there's this stuff about their heavily pregnant uh, and overdue friend who keeps like tagging along to their things and they ignore her. But what it's actually meant to be is that they're really good friends. But she's Chinese, and it's not like. It's not explained who she is, really, or why she isn't part of the Spice Girls. They give her this backstory where she's seen, like, training them, and I amused myself by accident when I was... Well, I watched this with my wife. I made her sit I, down I and was going to ask if, if Mrs. Owen had to watch this as well. She did. She had to watch it what, as well. What was her response when you told her that was what you were watching? <laughs> yeah, she wasn't um, over the moon about it. Did you uh... to stop doing this stupid bloody podcast? Um, she she says that fairly often but this is uh, yeah so we watched it together and there was this Chinese character and I said to her like just like as we were watching it I said so if she was going to be a Spice Girl what would be her Spice name and I immediately said answering my own question Five Spice <laughs> and realised how <laughs> bloody racist uh, I was being but I couldn't help chuckle at my own stupid joke so that's part of the reason I would take this to a, a desert island, so I could, you know, feel some nostalgia about that time I amused myself. Um, I bet she didn't laugh, did she? She did, just gave me that look. I don't have to explain the look. I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there's, uh, but actually, you know what? There's, there's bits in the film that aren't horrendous, if that's the only way to describe them, because there's this thing about the press being out to get them, which again plays into this idea that I think it's meant to be kind of meta. It's meant to be kind of self-referential. So Barry Humphreys plays the Australian newspaper-owning soulless jerk in this film, which is obviously, you know, about real life, about, hey, look, you know, the press are evil and they're trying to get the the Spice Girls all the time. They're trying to catch them out and they're making up rumours and stuff. So that was like the first bit of the film trying to be quite clever, but actually not really doing anything with that plot at all. Um, 
Elton John makes a cameo as himself, and he gets snogged by the girls at one point, which is a bit strange. And then you also have um, a Bob Hoskins makes a little cameo, and is brilliant. He's in the, on screen for about ten seconds, and he really made me laugh. And but the best thing about it, the best thing about the Spice World, because there's only really one thing that's good, which is Alan Cumming, who plays the um, like this posh. English documentarian who's trying to follow the Spice Girls around for this documentary, but is clearly out of his depth. But and he's just really funny, isn't he? He just really gets how to portray a character in this film. Whereas often the Spice Girls are the any any point the Spice Girls are on screen is the absolute worst. <laughs> if you could cut out all of their scenes and just watch this kind of rambling sketch, it would be like a three out of ten film. With the Spice Girls, it's, it's teetering on one and a half out of ten. But it's still better than Kill Keith. And, like, by far and away, ten, twenty, thirty, a hundred times better than United Passions. So, there you go, Steve. Spice World, one Ooh. and a half out of ten. There we go. It's not the worst. And it's not even the worst film that we've made each other watch. Have you, have you reviewed it on Letterboxd? I haven't, no. Um... We'll move, Should I? <laughs> why not? We'll move. We'll move on to the news now. Uh, a few things to cover. Perhaps the the, the biggest, or one of the biggest, is that Marvel are now um, going to release a solo Black Widow movie um, after a lot of fan pressure um, and probably some accusations of them being sexist because there's not many female-led superhero films. Yeah, um, yeah. The I mean they haven't specifically said that they are absolutely making a Black Widow um, movie and when it's going to be released. You know, it's not... They ha- they're they still kind of um, slowly teasing what's going to be in Phase 4. Mm. Um, but as far as, like, word-of-mouth firm commitment goes, it's, yeah, they've, they've Kevin Feige has singled out the character for a standalone film. And it does feel a lot like it's because of fan pressure. Because, you know, a while back, perhaps even after Avengers, we were all going... On this podcast, I mean, we were all saying, why hasn't she got um, a, a film of her own in the making? Or even her with, and um, Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye together. Well, I mean, that's that's what I was going to say. Obviously not Scarlett Johansson, she's more than a big enough actress to carry a film as a lead. But the, the character of mm. Black Widow, is she... Is she enough? Is she got enough about her to to carry a, a standalone film? I, mean, I I thought the most obvious thing would be to team her up with Hawkeye and do mm. and do a it, it you know do a film as those two as the leads as as Shield operatives or whatever as spies or assassins mm-hmm. or whatever as as a as a duo, um, but I just can't see. Black Widow carrying a film as, the, as a solo lead. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, again, has been something raised online that, that I've read um, over the past week, but I think that she does have backstory. There's aspects of her character that haven't been explored, nor will they be explored if she's constantly sidekicking well, yeah, she, she has, Captain America or Iron she Man. She has just or... been purely a sidekick so far, hasn't she? And she might have, mm. she might have given characters certain motivations or done key things to advance the plot like in a in a 
in Civil War, where she was. I'm not going to spoil it because it's mm-hmm. still quite fresh, but it, towards the end, she did something that enabled something to happen. Her actions were key, and but she is still a, a sidekick to either Iron Man or Captain America. Yeah, and I think if she was male, it wouldn't really matter. You wouldn't really get this outcry for people well, saying no, that it should definitely be a solo no, film. But if she was male, she probably would already have one. Well, I mean, no one's. Well, I don't know because no one's asking. No one's asking for a Hawkeye standalone movie, and we're not getting one. Mm. And he is. Well, he, yeah, he is proving to be as, as the films go on one of the more sort of a, well. He gets quite. He's got quite a lot of depth for somebody who's a, a secondary character. I think that maybe they were trying to put depth in. I think in part that could have been because Jeremy Renner was a bit annoyed at how underdone or little screen time he had in the first Avengers film. Because I think he was a bit vocal about that, wasn't he? That he didn't have as much screen time as what he thought he was going to get. Yeah, I th- I can't remember where I heard this. It might have been on Pick a Flick um, with um, Brooker and Tony talking about it. Or I might have read it in... Some of the build-up to Civil War. But I've, the fact that, that, that Joss Whedon mapped out the whole plot for Jeremy Renner's character, to map out the whole idea that Hawkeye um, or Clint Barton had this family, had this background, and that's what he really was, was a family man. Um, and so it was like he had to break the news to Jeremy Renner that in Avengers he was going to be in a beefed up role after being in Thor mm. but was going to be brainwashed for like 90 He did nothing in Thor did he? He was in like one scene Yeah he sort of shot an arrow from a, yeah. a crane or something really. yeah. yeah But you know Scarlett Johansson as um, Black Widow was in Iron Man 2 which was only yeah. the third film in the MCU mm. and she, she has quite a significant role in that when you Rewatch it, and I think Iron Man Two is a decent film. I don't know why people hate that film so much. I really think it's quite decent as far as uh, you know the lesser Marvel films go. Yeah, but and yeah, so basically back on track. <laughs> I think that um, yes, th- there's enough there in her character to get a standalone film. If they make it a two and a half hour long action epic like Civil War. Maybe that won't work. Mm. Um, but certainly a sort of hour and 40, hour and 50 minute spy thriller is kind of what the, the franchise would kill for, really. Yeah. Um, Especially then if Hawkeye does get his own film, he clearly could play the sort of comedy side of it. Because there's um, a series of uh, comics by a writer called Matt Fraction, which are kind of lovingly referred to as Hawk Guy. Mm. Because the, Matt Fraction's son said about the comic book series, he kept referring, he's, he's got this young son and he kept referring to Hawkeye as Hawkeye. Yeah. So now fans call it Hawkeye. And that plays the character out as a very, um, well, he, he spends most of the film, uh, most of the comic book series in his flat um, or dealing with local residents in his building who, yeah, it's just quite a fun little light comic book and I think they could make that into a Hawkeye film or at least keep that tone and, and sort of um, transpose it to, to a movie and have a sort of 90 minute kind of down to earth Hawkeye film mm. um, so yeah I don't know I think the scope for both characters really but uh, on the um, sort of feminist side of the argument that you know Marvel have been a bit 
pro male and not so into their female characters. Uh, it's good news. It is good news to see them doing this. And whether it's because of fan pressure or not, I mean, at the end of the day, who cares, really? It's happening. Yeah. So. In, in other news, uh, Power Rangers got boobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, Power Rangers costumes that came out, all the, the pictures of them anyway for this reboot, they have boobs, which doesn't sound like it's going... Like the, the female characters, I mean, they've got boobs. The, it doesn't sound like it should be a big deal, but there's always been this thing about Power Rangers that the characters have been, um, or at least their costumes have been somewhat gender neutral. Um, I know that you had the pink one who had a little like dress or something, but it was effectively there was no uh, boob plate on there. It just looks so, stupid. It looks a bit odd, doesn't it? it doesn't look right. It just doesn't. It doesn't look right at all. You... The character costumes themselves look a bit odd as well. Have you seen the... Yeah. the I mean, they all look a bit Iron Man-y, but really overdone. Mm. Like, back into the 90s with other Japanese TV shows, like, uh, was it Ultraman or something? Yeah. You know, and uh, Superhuman Samurai or whatever it was. There's like... Okay, I get it that that's where the Power Rangers originated, but it does look a bit odd. They look like they're all, you know, Volkswagens or Hyundais in armour. It's just strange. Yeah, it just looks... I don't know, it just doesn't look right. It just looks a bit daft. Um, It looks very daft. mm. But, you know, that's what Power Rangers have always done, really. Look a bit daft. And also, you've got the whole... um, Never mind the gender stereotyping for these. They've always had like the black guy as the black ranger, the yellow ranger is always the Chinese one, the pink one's the female. I mean, it's just a bit. Mm. There's, you know, it's the most un PC sort of superhero team, but you got to kind of take that with what comes, really. Yeah, there's no green ranger there, which there should be, or white ranger. Um, yeah. Did you used to watch Power Rangers and see? Were you yeah, like every other kid? I, in I the watched world? it. Like I can't remember really anything about it, mm. but I I watched it. Yeah, yeah, I rewatched the first episode for uh, some podcast that we did together. Can't remember what it was. Maybe like rebooting mm. TV shows or something. And it was um, awful. It's really, really awful. Um, just a confused mess because you know how it was made right Power Rangers it was the Japanese programs and then the English bit but yeah all the action scenes were from Japan from a Japanese show and they just cut in all the bits that were reshot with British characters but even the the bad guy Rita something the witch she was Japanese Mm. and they just dubbed her instead of reshooting her because obviously she was there with all the monsters yeah yeah it's a, a weird... It's just not worth going back and watching. I find I found that with a lot of old cartoons that I used to love as a kid. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Garbage. Mm. Um, final bit of news is that we had the TV BAFTAs. Um, and this is showing embarrassingly how little TV I've watched. Uh, you mean you didn't watch Celebrity Juice? I, I've tried watching that. And loads of people like it. So it must... It must have some value. I just don't. I don't get that Lay Francis guy. Um, I mean, I watched Bo Selector when I was younger and, and liked yeah. it. I don't know if I would anymore if I watched it again. 
But like they used to love those selectors as well. All the other stuff that he's done, I just don't get it. I don't get his characters. I don't get him. I don't get the whole celebrity juice thing. I, I just don't. I don't understand. I mean, it seems like it should be something that lampoons celebrity culture, but at the same time, is really just it in a nutshell. Yeah. You know, the taking the piss they love stuff like The Only Way is Essex or, you know, there's kind of shows and those people who are on them and stuff. But actually, um, he just seems to be it. That's all he is. Mm. It doesn't seem to be poking fun at them. So there's no satire there. But I suppose it is a character. So in terms of performance, he's done well with it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, lead act, best lead actor was uh, Mark Rylance for Wolf Hall. I've heard very good things about Wolf Hall. I've not seen it. I tried to watch it. I couldn't get into it. Um, not because it was too... Uh, well, I was going to say highbrow. I suppose it is very highbrow. You know, it's proper BBC period drama. Mm. Um, but it, I just found it a bit slow. And it was at a time when I was watching a lot of other stuff. So I just... It was one of those shows that made the call. I didn't dislike yeah. it. I just couldn't really find the time to keep up with it. Um, best... But, Best yeah. actress went to Saran Jones for Dr. Foster, which again I've heard is really good. But um... Yeah, it's another one of these award ceremonies where we haven't watched most of the things. No, I've watched so little new television this year. I mean, um, Peter Kay won an award for, for Car Share, which is his own programme, which again is meant to be really, really good. Really a um, bit of a return mm. to form for him, him not putting out another bloody rehash of his stand-up show. Yeah. Which was on TV again at the weekend, mm. I think. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really get on with car share. Mm. Wasn't my kind um, of thing. But yeah, I'm just, I'm just looking through the list now. The, the big one, uh, soap and continuing drama that went to EastEnders. Oh yeah, the soap wars. All down. What side are you on, Steve? I, I do not watch the soaps very often. But if I, <laughs> if I watch the soaps, it will be EastEnders. Mm. It's casualty of soap. Um, I, be, I think it is. It used to be a series, but now it seems to be on every week. And Holby City, Holby City was nominated. Casualty wasn't. Right. Um, so, fun, okay. funnily enough, my brother wrote scripts for Holby City and Casualty, and used to work on EastEnders. So, oh, there you go. Yeah, he's a success in the family. In the <laughs> well, you've got a podcast that's on the front page of iTunes mm, at the minute, and, and he can't say that. He can't claim um, that, can he? When was the last? What was the last thing he wrote that was on the front page of iTunes? Exactly. Indeed. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes. What else did we have? We had Best Entertainment Program with Strictly Come Dancing, um, which was up against Adele at the BBC, Britain's Got Talent, and TFI Friday Anniversary Special. Ah, uh, TFI was shite. It was garbage. Did you watch any of the TFIs? No, I can't remember it from younger. So, oh, you can't. Okay. No, I remember it being on. I can't remember remember much about it. Um, I remember. I do remember watching it when I was younger, and I used to think it was um, good because it felt kind of adult. It felt a bit like the Big Breakfast, but you know, late at night, and you were well. It wasn't even that late, was it? But it just felt mm. like it was more adult. And um, I used to, yeah, I used to enjoy it. But I tried watching it again. There isn't even this nostalgia there. It's just shit. Yeah. Just awful. There's some really shit awards in it. Best reality and constructed factual. Winner was first dates up against Goggle Box. I'm a celebrity in the secret life of five year olds. Mm. Just... Yeah, the one that looks like it, um, if I had to say, if I had voted, uh, is the fact that 
peep show last day in scripted comedy to car share. Peter Kay's car share. Mm. That's that's a joke, isn't it? I mean, I, I know it's the comedy, but... Peep, the, the final season of Peep Show was not pinnacle Peep Show. It, it wasn't, but it was still pretty good. It was still better than but most car, But Car Share was really well received. I mean, you might not have liked it, and I've not seen it, but it, it was really well received. I'm not disputing that, but, you know... Uh, unless you're giving, like... <laughs> not not at its best peep show award because it's not won it before. Perhaps it's like kind of when Ryan Giggs won sports personality because he was retiring. Yeah, maybe. But at the same time, um, I did think it was pretty good. It was one of the better shows that was that's been on in the last twelve months. Certainly in Britain, mm. anyway. Time for us to tackle what we've been watching, where we have a look at some. Um films we've seen in the last week or so that aren't necessarily new releases or the one that I've seen is as we're mm. doing a new release section this week and that is uh, uh, Bad Neighbours 2 if you're outside North America if you're inside North America it's uh, Neighbours 2 colon Sorority Rising I'm not quite sure why we have to have the difference in name So this is, is, is Kylie Minogue back in here? Uh, no no, no, nor Jason Donovan. Oh, um, I'm not interested. No. In... Yeah. no, I'm not quite sure why the name is different. In I remember it being different. I can't remember. Oh, um, the Watch. It was the, the comedy with mm-hmm. um, Ben, yeah, ben, ben Stiller and Jonah Hill, and that had to change its name from Neighborhood Watch to The Watch because in America, some Neighborhood Watch man had, had shot some person when they shouldn't have done, and there was all some big hoo-ha. Um, I think it was because, the, but perhaps I might have got this completely wrong, apologies, but the guy who was shot was a minority, and there was the accusation that the guy just shot him because he thought he was a, because he was a minority, he thought he was up to no good instantly when actually he wasn't, and all that kind of stuff, so I had to change the name of the film. Didn't make any sense to me. Not sure why. Oh, well, I'm not absolutely never watching The Watch again because it shared a name with that event, Neighbourhood Watch. I mean, that's too... Too soon, surely. Mm. Uh, I mean, I actually, say, I actually just... liked the watch, and I saw it at the cinema, and not never heard anything of it again. Never seen it on telly. <laughs> never seen it on demand. Never seen it anywhere again. It's like it didn't exist, but I actually thought it was all right. Anyway, was it like aliens or something? Yeah, it was kind of like um, an invasion of the body snatchers kind of thing, okay. or you know, rep- oh, because it was the same same ish time as um, the Simon Pegg one, right? Um... What was that called? So that was World's End. World's End, yeah. I don't think so. I can't remember, to be honest, anyway. But anyway, this so, so this is a sequel to the first Neighbours, or Bad Neighbours movie, um, which stars um, Seth Rogen um, and Zac Efron. Uh, and in the first film, um, Seth Rogen's character and, and wife moved into a house that had a, um, a frat house moving next door, caused the, 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 the couple and their baby all kinds of problems. So they had a, a war as such. Um, and But in the end, Zac Efron's character, who was the in charge of the frat house, became friends with Seth Rogen. And now in the second film, a sorority house moves in next door um, and causes all kinds of problems. So Seth Rogen's character gets Zac Efron's character back in to help him out this time as their mates. And it is... I like the first one. I like this one. I like this one a bit less because it's not quite as good. 
That is that is there is <laughs> there is not really a lot else to say. It's a, it's pretty much the same cast. Chloe Grace Moretz comes in as um, the, the I don't know what you call the person in charge of a sorority house, like the head woman or whatever she's called. But she but she's that. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's basically the same plot, and uh, just the jokes are a bit different. Um, mm. Yeah, it, like I say, it's, it's really not, if you like the first one and you like comedies from the likes of Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill, if you like Jump Street and Superbad and all that kind of stuff, you'll probably like this. But um, it's not as good as the first one, but it is still it's okay. You know, it you'll get laughs out of you. Uh, well, there's worse ways to pass an hour and a half or whatever, however long it is. Well, Brooker hated it, but he reviewed it for the website and he thought it was it was a horrific <laughs> experience. It, yeah, I think he echoed the same points that you made earlier, just being um, a repeat of the same jokes. Yeah. Um, but, he, it, you know, in the same way that when films do that and then they aren't funny because it's the same joke, just done worse. Um, Ted. Two, for yeah. example, um, or um, Hot Tub Time Machine Two. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen those, but I would probably agree without but, having seen them. The, the one that doesn't do it is Jump Street. Jump Street was different, wasn't it? I mean, they put a lot more effort into crafting a, a sort of workable script for that. And they and they kind of were very aware that it was a sequel because the whole opening ten minutes is them kind of poking fun at the fact that making a sequel that won't be yeah, as good as the first yeah. one. Yeah. And then the end exactly. the end credits are one of the best things about twenty two Jump Street. They're amazing. Mm. So I mean we did have this conversation earlier before we started recording. Um when was the last great comedy that you saw in the cinema? Great comedy. Not just yeah. not just good comedy. Great Not not just like, you know, twenty two Jump Street was alright, but the last great one. Can you even remember what it would be? Right. It's a tough question. When, and, um, when was, was Borat before Superbad? Oh, I don't know. Because I love. I didn't I, see Superbad till it was on DVD. I love Superbad, but Borat was. Had been yeah. Bit, I, I need to. I need to know what was released when. That, that's my biggest. That's my biggest <laughs> example of films. I couldn't tell you what year things were released in. But even Borat is a long time ago now, you know. Borat's, you know, must be what at least two thousand eight, probably longer. And even, you know, I can't really think of much myself that was released since then that I saw in the cinema that was great. Mm. You know, I would have liked to um, have seen the voices in the cinema, but even that's not like an out-and-out out comedy. Does, and does, I, I just does, don't know. Does Kickass count as a comedy? Um, I, I guess, I guess, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy, maybe, counts as a comedy, mm. but, yeah, there's, yeah. There's been lots of, there's been lots of good comedies, comedies that I've liked, I'm just looking at a, a list now that I found on IMDb of um, comedies released between 2009 and 2013, um, and there's things in there like um, Easy A with Emma Stone or Pitch Perfect, um, which were both which were both good comedies. I thought they're not great. Um, yeah, the, the other guys with um, Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell. Well, that's um, kind of half a good film, isn't I, it? I like that one as well. Um, 
there's nothing in there that made it stands out as me thinking that yeah that was great that had me laughing yeah, all the way the through. The fact that we're struggling to remember them probably mm. says how pretty bleak it's been for comedies. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they like like we said. I'm not saying there haven't been good ones, but there haven't been any great ones. There haven't been any. No. There hasn't been any that I will think back on. No, I mean the five the, sort of the, ten years and think that was the five, tremendous. The five year engagement and the, the the newest two Muppets movies. Good comedies, not great. Uh, mm. So yes, I can't quite think. Of... I mean, I love Birdman, but even Birdman's not an out and out comedy. No. When I say out comedy, it's something that makes me. Just constantly laugh. It's just like a gag reel, right? That's like an out-and-out comedy. The, the Borat movie was 2006. So 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So 10 years ago. Um, it's a long time. Yeah. Oh, The Wolf of Wall Street. I loved The Wolf mm. of Wall Street. Well, again, it's not out-and-out out comedy. comedy, is it? It's something, something like an out-and-out out comedy, you'd say, is probably something like Bad Neighbours or... Dumb and Dumber, yeah. or something like that. Something that is geared up to make you just joke after joke after joke. Just mm. jokes. Oh, along I know. Stuff. Yeah. I know what the best one was. And yeah, undisputed now is Alpha Papa. Yeah. I bloody loved Alpha Papa. Yes. That, that has yeah, been a... probably the best one for a long time. I'm starting to think now there was another comedy out around the same time as Alpha Papa that was really good, but I can't remember for life what it was now. Um, but yeah, Alpha Path was fantastic. Life on the Road probably won't be though. If we're talking about um, British sitcom characters going onto the silver screen. Life on the Road, which one's that? David Brent. Oh yeah. If, it, if it's half as good as Special Correspondence, it'll be garbage. <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be our episode title this week: garbage. Mm. I think I've said it twice, two or three times now, and it's infected you. <laughs> infected by garbage. Yep. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, so what is it that you've seen this week? So I was quite curious after um, Brooker and Paul on the podcast were talking about a thriller that was on Netflix recently called Hush, which um, sort of piqued my interest. So oh, I had I've look... seen this. I watched Have it, you I watched seen it? For a week. Is this the one, the kind of um, slasher horror film with with the deaf girl? It is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you think of it? I I thought it it was a really interesting concept delivered poorly. Delivered poorly. See, I thought it was a kind of. I mean, if you if someone commissioned you right now to write a sort of home invasion thriller about a deaf girl right all the little things you would note down the things that come into your head first someone sneaks up behind her and she doesn't know they're there she tries to escape thinking they're not looking then she can't hear them all like all these things that you would just first pop into your head and you would put down are in this film Mm. and i don't don't think they go any further than that i think it's 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 a competently made film. I thought it was quite tense it, on occasion. There were bits in it that were that were done very well. Um, but yeah, for a film which is essentially a deaf writer in the woods on her own with no internet, no phone, who's being attacked by a killer with, you know, no known motivation. Um, 
It's all there. Everything that you would immediately think of, they put in this film and do not expand on it any further than that. Which is fine. As far as this film goes, I think it's, like I said, it's okay. I was entertained by it. Um, I had to stop watching it halfway through because, you know, I did watch this one with my wife as well, with Mrs. Owen, and she was watching it, and she... I don't call her Mrs. Owen. <laughs> but she, she was watching it with me, and halfway through, was like, I don't want to watch any more of this because she just got so sort of het up by it. I was like, okay, that's fair enough. I'll watch it on my... I'll watch the rest of it on my own at another time. And, um, you know, it was like eventually convinced her to come back and watch it with me. And she was uh, wasn't freaked out by it. And I think that's just the sort of failing of the film is that it builds up a lot of tension and kind of executes everything in the most predictable way. Like, you know, for a fact that the, the what you see in the opening sort of few scenes will come into play again later on. It's just inevitable. You know, it's the whole Hitchcock thing about um, if you see a gun in the first act, you fire it in the third act. Mm. You know, it's that. That is, this film is written to a formula. Um, so I find it quite difficult to criticise it because it just is like a tick box affair. and doesn't really do anything particularly outstanding. Um, but in terms of originality of concept of someone who's deaf they don't really do much with that either you know what i mean there's no like there aren't really any bits in the film that are silent there's no bits in the film where you as the viewer can't hear you can always hear everything which seems a bit of a a wasted opportunity Mm. to help with that atmosphere and to help you sort of um sympathize with the character it doesn't, yeah. So I don't know. It was okay. It was, it was, for a film that's about eighty minutes long, it was fine. It was fine. I don't think it was the best film that's ever been put onto Netflix, and I can understand why it's being touted through word of mouth as something that you have to see on Netflix because they they, they don't often put uh, decent little thrillers on there. They usually go for the bigger. Insidious sequels, or they put Sinister on there and stuff like that. Whereas this was by the same studio, but much more lower key. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it was okay. I thought it was okay. It was all right. Before we move on to Triple Bill, we're going to answer a few of your uh, listener questions. It's always fun when you lot send in <laughs> stuff for us to talk about. Yeah. And we didn't, we never asked for a particular theme. So if you want to ask us about um, films, feel free. If you want to ask us about non film related things, as a couple of the questions that we received are. And I think I'd typically aim towards Steve and his profession. Um, although you, you dispute that, don't you, Steve? I just. Dis- You're not even going <laughs> to. I dispute Paul. <laughs> I, okay. I don't even think he's real. Yeah. Well, before we get to, you know, it gets real. Okay. Before we get to Paul's questions, we've got a couple of others. Um, some guys who have uh, not contributed to the podcast before, so far as I'm aware, anyway. Uh, I thought we'd lead with their question. This is from Cosmic Potato Podcast at Cosmic Potato underscore one on Twitter. They sent us a question in that said, if you had your choice, 
between all episodes of all Star Trek series, all the Star Wars films, or nothing, what would you pick? Um, so what would you pick, Steve? Is it even worth me asking you? I mean, the, the question is, is, is why are the space buds making me make this decision? <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's what I kind of need to know. Like, am I stuck on a desert island the rest mm. of my life? Am I being under duress to watch one? Um, surprisingly enough, and this could be a big regret depending on the situation I'm in, I've seen all seven Star Wars films lots. And there's, there's, I say only seven films, but it's only seven films. And if this is for all time, there's much more material in the Star Trek series. There's God knows how many series now and all different things. So the gamble I'm taking is that I'm going to like Star Trek. Because if I like Star Trek... I would not have expected that If I like Star Trek, I'll get more value out of taking all the series of Star Trek than I will out of Star Wars. Because it'll be something new to start with, and there's more of it. Yeah, but you you might watch the first episode and just have that immediate, like, I've made a huge plus, mistake moment. Plus, I can play Star Wars probably back in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I can probably, you must know it all I, off by heart. I can probably surely. imagine all of Star Wars. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm going to go with Star Trek. I mean, I don't know why you'd pick nothing. Yeah, that's what I've thought as well. So I think I would pick Star Trek 2 if it includes the movies. Um, the good movies, that is. I don't, the I don't think you get a Not choice. Not the two shite J.J. Abrams I think ones. It's, I think it's either all movies or no movies, really. I don't think you, you pick and choose. I think it's the whole lot or none of it. Well, it says all the episodes of all Star Trek series. So I'm assuming when it says series, it means films included. Hmm. Hmm. But, you know, um, yeah. I mean, the series I like, but otherwise I wouldn't be asked either way, I don't think. Yeah. Going for, yeah, going for nothing seems a bit naive, but I'd still probably take Star Trek. You could, st- you could still probably make some use out of the packaging if you were stuck on a desert island and you, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you didn't like, you know. Build a raft out of them or shine a light off the DVDs to start a fire or something. Yeah. Mm. So... But the yeah so okay so but maybe I might have considered Star Wars for similar reasons that you considered Star Trek, I guess I'd have more interest in kind of watching the mythology uh, yeah the mythology building under the sort of new features the new films that come out uh, in the expanded universe than I would just rewatching the Star Trek films. Ah oh, well, see, I took it. I only took it as to be things that have been released so far. I mean, if it's stuff that hasn't been released, then yeah, it's Star Wars every day. Mm-hmm. I need to know what's going on. Yeah, it's so, a very vague question. But thank you, um, Space Buds, the Steve called you. Yeah. We're going to have to set up a parody podcast. I don't know what Cosmic Potato Podcast is about, but Space Buds is too good mm. to waste. Yes. Maybe they'll start uh, calling themselves that now. <laughs> Do you think so? No. No, me neither. But, you know, thanks very much, Cosmic Potato Podcast people. Um Thank you for your question, and I hope that was a satisfactory answer. Possibly not. Um, our well, second question... Get it from us, <laughs> Unfortunately, this is how we roll. Yeah, We had Chris Haig, uh, who is at higher underscore boy on Twitter. He's been on the podcast himself a few times, actually. He said, best Bond song that isn't actually a Bond song? Question mark. I don't know how you can answer that, because if it's not a Bond song, it's not a Bond song. Well, I think <laughs> it means the best sort of bond sounding bond 
Some, well, do you know what I mean? Yes, well, I mean, if we're going to look at it that way, and I'm not going to be a complete pedant about things, um, <laughs> then I remember that the lead singer of the Arctic Monkeys made one of these super groups with somebody else I can't remember. I oh, it's called, from Josh Hum. I think it's from, called Last of the Shadow Puppets. Yes, yeah. And their first album pretty much sounded like all Bond songs and was really good. So I, I'm just going to go for that. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I don't really like Arctic Monkeys anymore. I didn't like them at first, and then I got the album and I was like, this is fucking brilliant. And then after a while, just went off them again. Mm. Very short-lived. Um, but yeah, so the selector, James Bond, obviously... Like I thought maybe a big orchestral sort of song that would suit Bond without actually belonging to a Bond film. So maybe someone like John Grant. He's done a song called Where Dreams Go to Die. It's kind of got a Bondy sounding title as well. Uh, something like that, maybe. This is like a well-oiled machine. Could I please see that smile? I don't know. I fucking love John Grant, by the way. I've only been into him since about, I don't know when it was, October, November last year. A mate of mine had a free ticket uh, going to his show in Hammersmith at the Apollo. So I went with him, having no idea who John Grant was, um, other than the description that uh, Rick sent me. And I've, hang on, I've got it here. I've got the description. This is how he described John Grant. He was trying to, like, flog the ticket to me. He said... John Grant is amazing. He's done three records. The third one just came out. And they're a mix of beguiling 70s singer-songwriter stuff and esoteric electronica. He's very big and gay. So, yeah, perfectly suited to Bond then, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant, though. I really recommend John Grant's stuff. If you, but, uh, if you like big and gay. If you like big, gay, esoteric electronica... That sounds like beguiling 70s singer-songwriter stuff. There, he's your man. 
He's your man. He's got that niche zone. Mm. That is yeah. certainly a niche. <laughs> it is a little bit of a niche. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so third question is from Brian Plank, um, who I hesitate to call a listener because he was only on the podcast last week. But he said, which actors would do well in another genre, like action hero Adrian Brody, but better? Right. I don't know why Adam Sandler doesn't give comedy a bash. Well, hey, <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't give acting more of a bash, because actually some of the stuff where he plays more serious role is actually quite good. Yeah, Punch Drunk Love, he was mm. quite good in. Mm. Um, I mean, it does seem odd, doesn't it, with Adam Sandler? Because he was he was a decent stand-up in the 80s. He yeah. was part of that whole Kings of Comedy circuit. And I've seen some of his stuff, and I've got like an audio CD or MP3 or something of like a mix of that era stand-up. And he was funny, you know. It just seems strange that he's gone from from that guy, who does kind of absurdist, surrealist sort of stand-up, to... The guy who makes Grown Ups 2 and just gets his mates together to go on holiday and makes an absolutely appalling movie. Mm. It just seems like, just... It's just like he's taken the easy option. Maybe. Doing. Just got older and thought, you know, I can't really do stand-up routines about lettuces in the fridge that sound like Elvis Presley or whatever it was he did. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe, what about then Tom Cruise in a horror film? Yeah, think of all the different creatures and monsters and maniacs that he could run away from. He does like running, doesn't he? Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult question. Actors seem to be getting more and more versatile, don't they? Mm. You see someone, well, they you do, see someone yeah. like Jonah Hill starts off in comedies, now doing does more serious films and and kind of you know gets Oscar nominations and things. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I thought about Chris Pratt earlier as well when I was, you know, doing this. And yeah. OK, fair enough. The Lego movie is still pretty much comedy and Guardians of the Galaxy is very funny. But Jurassic World, he plays a kind of archetypal uh, adventure film male hero. Yeah. In that. And uh, it's something slightly different to what you would expect Chris Pratt to be doing. And, and you get people like Jim Carrey, who you predominantly think is a comedy actor. And then you mm-hmm. start looking at what films he's actually made. And some of his best performances are, are not comedy roles, and you see he's actually not a really good actor. Um, yeah. Well, Steve Carell, Oscar nominated. Yeah, you know, yeah. Most, put him most on a fake nose. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, when he does serious roles now, he, he's he's really good at those. He's not just like a one hit yeah. wonder in Foxcatcher doing a serious role. Uh, no, well, I think um, uh, way, way back, the way, way back, he was really good in that. Mm. It was a sort of sort of snidey, uh, e- e- not evil, but like a horrible stepdad. He was great in that. He was really good. In fact, that might be my favourite Steve Carell role. Mm. Yeah. But um, so what I thought about a bit longer uh, for this one, it took a, a while to come up with an answer, but I think... What I'm going to go for is there's been a bit of a Western revival lately. You know, you've got Mads Mikkelsen in The Salvation, uh, Kurt Russell in Bone Tomahawk, Michael Fassbender in Slow West, all those kind of things, as well as the larger films like uh, True Grit and Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight and, and films like that. So what about Michael Shannon, who is an incredibly intense actor in a Western movie where he's got to maybe lighten up a little bit? But still has the, you know, the intensity that he provides would suit some of the the darker moments that are often in 
westerns and the shootouts and stuff. So maybe he could play the Robert Redford character and, you know, Oscar Isaac in Paul Newman's role in a new Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm. That might be workable and puts them both firmly out of their comfort zone. Yeah. Have you got any thoughts? Anyone you thought might be? I really struggled with this. I just drew blanks everywhere. Um, I was trying to think more uh, a more serious actor who Mm. could who could do a good comedic turn. Um, That's harder, isn't it? mm. I mean, it's yeah, you're right. It was easier to try and think of comedians who or comedy actors who've gone on to do serious stuff, but trying to think the other way around. De Niro's transitioned into doing a lot of kind of comedies now, but I wouldn't exactly say he's a great comic actor. No. Um, It's kind of good in was it Meet the Parents. That's a long time yeah. ago now. Analyse that. Mm. He was okay. Was it analyse that or analyse this? There was analyse this, this and I think there was analyse that afterwards. Um, yeah. 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 I, I don't know why I think... I think Maybe I think, Bruce Willis could try a... Well, I mean, um, he, he, he started his sitcoms, didn't he? Well, I was going to say the other way around. Maybe he could try method acting as... Um, you know, someone who seals themselves inside of a coffin and gets thrown to the bottom of the sea. Mm. That might be a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, I think Hugh Jackman could probably do a really good comedy performance. Huge, yeah, but I mean, again, well, I suppose he hasn't actually done a com. Well, an educate that was it, movie forty three, where he had testicles on his chin. That doesn't count as a movie. <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't count as anything other than a waste of people's time. If anything, that just disproves the theory that he could do a comedy, I yeah. suppose. It yeah. only work with what you're given. Mm, true. Anyway, should we have our final question before we do a triple bill? Yeah, go on then. Okay, so this one is from Paul, mm. as we um, alluded to earlier. He sort of p- put two questions together here, and I think they are more directed at you. He said, caravan chemical toilets, what are the options? Any thoughts on the Thetford Porter Potty range and swivel bowls? And when partaking in vigorous lovemaking in a 2011 Lunar Lexon 570, any tips on preventing damage to the twin axles? Um, See, no, I'm no expert. I'm no expert. My advice would probably be to stabilise the caravan properly before partaking in such activities. Um, And on the swivel bowls, I don't know what that means. But I don't want anything swivelling below me when I go for a shift. But Steve, as someone who works in the holiday resort sector, the if that's I don't know what it what the sector would be for that. But what would you what would you go for? What how would you answer Paul's question? I would say that Paul has completely misunderstood the kind of <laughs> part of the industry I deal with and I can't <laughs> answer his questions. I don't really know what he's talking about. Uh I did ask him how many Googles it took. To find uh, the 2011 Luna Lexon 570 Z3, so you know he put a bit of effort into this question. Oh, it's immensely popular as this caravanning. I don't know why, because it is shitting in a shed on wheels, but <laughs> yeah, people seem to like it. Yeah, yeah. You better never mention which caravan park you work for. No, was it even a caravan park? I mean, what is it? What do you do? I can't tell people what I do. No, it's, I just work for by the sea. Yeah. In uh, the tourism industry. Yeah. Do you have caravans? We have holiday homes. Oh, holiday homes. Yeah, for caravans. But not the kind that you tow behind you on a car. 
No. No, you, you stick them on a lorry, and once they get where they go, and they stay in there. Uh, so if I stuck it on the back of my Hyundai i20. Yeah, you wouldn't really get very far. Move anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't get off your driveway. No. Or as soon as I got a bit of speed built up and hit the brakes. Oh no! It just, it just, it, that wouldn't even happen. No. No. Oh well. Um, so sorry, Paul. Um, but your your little far little, too far too researched. Your little plan backfired. <laughs> there we go. Okay, should we do some triple billing? Yes, we will. Uh, so triple bill this week is um, looking at our favourite films with minimal cast, as we are a minimal cast ourselves tonight. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's films with just a handful of characters at most. So maybe not something like Twelve Angry Men, you know, even though comparatively it has a small cast compared to some movies, but it's still got twelve central characters in it. Or even like, or maybe films with one or two central characters, but dozens of extras. I've excluded those from my list. Um, so I've, you know, I've gone for just films with maybe four or five people in at most. What what did you did you put any other rules on yourself when you were thinking of minimal cast and what that meant? Not really, just um, tried to keep it as um, small a cast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think in terms of main cast, none of my the films that I've picked have um, more than three as a main cast. Yeah, but they can. Uh, you counted like. You know, ancillary characters as part of the. Yeah, I mean, if you're counting, if you're counting extras, then, um, you know, you're still looking yep. at, at very minimal. If you're counting people who had say lines in the film, mm-hmm. um, and and physically appeared in the film, you're, you're talking minimal. Yeah. Like... So like Hush earlier, right? For example, has only got five people in it. Mm. So that's to that to me counts as part of would be part of this triple bill. But if I was thinking of something like Locke with Tom Hardy, for example, yeah. although you only see Tom Hardy, there's about a dozen other people in that film with voice acting. Yeah. So I've excluded that one from mine. I think that would be bending the rules too far. But it's up to you. You you can interpret minimal cast however you like, Steve. That's the beauty of failed critics. It's, you know, we're failing, so. Well, that's a matter of opinion. Why don't you start us off, then? Shall I start us? Okay. All right, so, um, okay, I've gone for one film, which I'll keep until last, as it's probably fairly predictable of me at this point. Um, And I've gone for two others that are released within a year of each other, which, um, I don't know, might be a surprise to some people, maybe not. But the first up, first one I've gone for is director William Wyler's 1965 psychological thriller, The Collector. And uh, yes, it's that William Wyler who directed Ben-Hur and Roman Holiday, amongst others. He made The Collector as well, a psychological thriller. Uh, it stars Terence Stamp as Freddy, who is a wimpish former bank clerk who collects butterflies. But is also a psychopath, and so he decides he's going to start collecting women instead. So he kidnaps a young woman called Miranda, who's played by uh, Samantha Egar, Egar? I don't know, Uh, who's an art student, and he basically he tries to keep her locked away 
in this room, this building that he's got, this purpose-built room that's like a dungeon, um, which is at his country house where only he lives. Simply for the pleasure of having her, as he puts it. There's kind of like a pre-Fritzel Fritzel, as it were. Um, Proto-Fritzel. Proto-Fritzel, indeed. I guess it's a bit like uh, Room, really, but without any strangely upbeat, upbeat vibes that kind of emanate from it at all. It's just really bleak as fuck, the, the collector. Uh, and also because of the era that it came out and because of who directed it, I think it's often bracketed in with films from a few years before this, such as, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, for being unusually dark turns by such high-caliber directors of the time. And, you know, of course, Hitchcock was already making these darkly comic thrillers well before Psycho, but I think sometimes the impact of that film um, or how unprepared audiences were for it gets a little bit forgotten so i think it's kind of fair that the collectors put in with with those two um and so in the collector weiler also tries to explore the depths of human depravity in a way that could get past the 1965 census and there's a funny story about that which i only learned today when doing a bit of research for this because i did a bit of research for a change apparently it only made it past the censors because the chap who was meant to be judging it for the censors, you know, that they have people who watch these films and determine whether something um, meets the standards or whether it's not going to get rated. The guy who was doing that at the time in America, he dozed off halfway through the, the, the screening of the film. So I never saw the twisted ending that this movie's got. I just signed it off. Right. Which is pretty incredible. He just fell asleep in the middle of the film. and was like, oh, fuck. Was it? Oh, it's probably okay. And actually, it was absolutely not okay by the, the standards of the censors at the time. So it's, it was. It must have been just fucking incredible to see this in 1965, because it's just so unlike, in terms of how far it goes, unlike other films that would have made it to the cinema. Uh, <clears throat> I think in total, the film has got four characters in it. It's mainly um, Stamp and Egger who take up the bulk of the, the two-hour runtime. Uh, they seem to both thrive in it as well. I think Weiler told everyone on set to basically treat Samantha Egger like shit, to sort of ignore her, um, not let her eat with them at lunch and such, so as to make her performance as this like trapped, isolated figure even more convincing. It seems a bit overkill, but it definitely works because she's just great in it. And uh, it, all, all it does really, I suppose, is serve to make Terence Stamp seem even more fucking terrifying than he already is. I mean, he's a pretty terrifying bloke anyway, but in this is just, yeah, he's unbelievable. Um, but, you know, the saying, you know, it's the hope that kills you. I think that seems strangely apt for the collector because all the way through, you're hoping that Samantha Ego's character, that she makes it out. And it teases you quite often with escapes and such like that, making it all the more tense. Uh, I mean, I'm not spoiling how the film ends, but it definitely feels like a torturous journey to get to that point. Um, so, yeah. First choice down, 1965's The Collector. So what have you gone for, Steve? Um, the first film I've gone for is, I've gone quite modern with my three, actually, uh, is uh, the, uh, what year was it, 2000? film Castaway with Tom Hanks. Oh right, yeah. And a volleyball. 
<laughs> and and Helen Hunt and one other person, pretty much. The the only mm-hmm. characters I can think of were, were Tom Hanks, uh, his wife played by Helen Hunt, um, the person from the company he worked for when he's found, and the pilot of the aircraft he's on when it crashes. I think um, there's the warehouse bit at the beginning as well. Right. Where, yeah, there's the guy who he's working with. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, for the majority of the film, uh, it is Tom Hanks acting on his own opposite a volleyball. Yeah. And it is, I mean, you know what you're going to get from Tom Hanks. He's, he's obviously a very good, um, very great actor with a lot of good and great films behind him. And it's always difficult when you're acting on even a small cast, even if it's two or three people, you've got people to play off of, you've got people to work with. In this, uh, and another film that I considered, I won't say until afterwards, just in case Owen's picked it, um, <laughs> but I don't know if he will or not, but um, you know, at least you've got people to work off of, you've got people to work with, you can bounce off them, you can build a rapport, you can build a relationship, you can judge their reactions, your facial expression, whatever, you can you can work with them. In, in this, he's working with nothing. He is just, it's just him. Um, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I really like Castaway. Um, I think it's, it's a lot of fun for what should be quite a bleak subject. So I, I think, um, he, he goes from sort of ecstatic to manically depressed and fed up and angry and uh, eat quite well. And, there's that scene where he tries to pull his own tooth out, which is just, mm. ugh. Yeah. You can kind of wince when you watch it. You think, oh, I can feel that. <laughs> I can feel my tooth pulling out. Ugh. I put off watching um, Castaway for ages because I think that uh, Robert Zemeckis has done some good films, um, but at the same time, I all, he's still the Forrest Gump guy. To me, and him with Tom Hanks, uh, I just—it took me ages to get around to the idea of thinking I'm—I'm I'm gonna enjoy this because I don't enjoy Forrest Gump. It's a schmaltzy, sentimental, sickly sentimental, just blah. It's horrible. But the—the the thing is, it was great. It was really good. Castaway. It was a really interesting idea. And yeah, you're right. I think it just basically comes down to the. Performance of Tom Hanks mainly, who has to soldier on as the the only character. He's he's good. He's really good. He's great, even. So, yeah, it's a good choice. Okay, your second choice. My second choice is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is from 1966. So that's the year after uh, The Collector. And for all intents and purposes, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf's just got four cast members. Stars Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton as Martha and George, who are a bickering uh, past middle-aged married couple. In fact, I think they're supposed to be approaching their 50s and Elizabeth Taylor had to wear a wig and have all this makeup put on her to make her look older than she actually was. Um, Because at the time, she was supposed to be like the most beautiful woman in the world and stuff, so... But yeah, so Richard Burton's character is a respected professor at a university and he invites over a guy called George, well, the actor's called George Seagull, who is a promising young professor at the same university. 
and his wife, who's played by Sandy Dennis. And it's directed by Mike Nichols, who made this in 1966, and then The Graduate, back to back, which is incredible, considering they were his two first two films. They were the films he debuted with, having previously only really done stage and theatre productions beforehand. Um, which probably explains why Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was such a success, given that it was actually a stage play first. And so, you know, Mike Nichols just does fantastic work with it. Um, I think the difference is, whilst The Graduate also has this uh, this dark cloud, this shadow that looms over it, and a kind of, uh, well, you could call it like a sexual frustration and a disassociation with the world in The Graduate, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf is perhaps somehow even darker than the graduate was in terms of the way that it views uh, humanity's outlook on community and relationships. And uh, it's like a comedy, but a terrible, tragic, depressing comedy. Um, so the laughs are all those sort where you kind of begin laughing and then realise what you're laughing at and st- stop suddenly. So, you know, that sort of, <laughs> oh, shit, wait, that kind of thing, you know, where you suddenly realise halfway through, oh, it's funny, but that shouldn't be funny. You should not be enjoying that joke. It's not there for humour, it's there for poignancy. But, you know, I think that it's um, also probably because the friction between Taylor and Burton is so real, so authentic, uh, you know, but I guess at this point they knew each other inside out anyway, given their actual real-life relationship. So it's kind of hardly surprising, but they work so bloody well together in this. Just absolute peak actors on top of their game. It's a great film as well, you know, regardless of just their performance, and the script is just brilliant in this. And for something with just four people in it, it's incredibly exhausting to watch, Uh, but in a good way, you know, because you feel so invested in it. Um, I said in my review, which was on Letterboxd at the time, I said, as petty quibbling escalates to incredibly emotionally draining arguments, it becomes increasingly difficult to watch, however, nonetheless brilliant. And I still stand by that. I still think that's true. I still think that it is draining. And you, at the end, you are tired. And as much as the characters are. Um, but it's better for it. It's, it's a journey and it's, it's done really well. Um, oh yeah, fun fact, it was also one of only two films to ever be nominated for every eligible category at the Academy Awards. Oh. There you go. The other being 1931 Cimarron, which was the first Western, only Western until, gosh, what was the next Western that won after that? Uh, Wild, Dances with Wolves. Wild, Wild West. Yeah, Wild Wild West as well, of mm. course. Dances with Wolves, and then Wild Wild West yeah. is the next, the next mm. West one. But there you go. Okay, my second choice is a horror film um, that's probably approaching ten years old now. Uh, no, it's not nowhere near ten years old. Sorry, um, but it's, it's um, in the last ten years, and that is with a cast of, according to Wikipedia, five people. Paranormal Activity. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was considering this one. So go away, Steve. Just, you know, lead. Tell me what, what, what you've picked it. Because it's scary as shit. <laughs> and I don't find horror films to, to be 
that scary or have that much of an effect on me after I've watched the film. I mean, any remotely half-decent horror film will have at least one jump scare where something jumps out and you sort of go, and makes you jolt a bit. But, you know, this did that, but it built up the tension really well um, of the of the, possess, the the thing possessing the person or the house or whatever it is possessing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, just, it was incredibly tense and, you know, you didn't know when anything was going to happen, you didn't know what was going to happen. And with with horror films, you kind of you think, well, I can see how they've done that effect, or you, you can kind of think, oh, it's just a special effect. There's one scene in this where um, the the girl gets kind of dragged out of bed and down the hallway, and I was just thinking, how the bloody hell do you film that? That looks really <laughs> real. Like that's really fucking terrifying. I can't think of how you'd possibly film this girl being dragged out of bed and on the floor down a hallway. Like how that is just terrifying and it's one of them films that I, I've told this story umpteen times on here when I watched it I watched it with friends from university uh, and what we did was went home started watching ghost videos on YouTube and then none of <laughs> us could sleep so just sat up in the living room all night playing on the PlayStation because none of us no one wanted to go to <laughs> that's a sign of a good horror though really that's, I what, mean, I mean. that's what it's supposed it's, to be I, I, if I watch a horror film I want it to make me not be able to go to sleep Mm-hmm. I want me to be led there thinking, oh, bloody hell, there's something there. Oh, I can't sleep. There's something in the dark. Something's going to happen. And that's what Paranormal Activity did. The other ones, uh, I like the second one. And then the third one, not so much. I don't think I've seen any other since then. No, I've seen the fourth one. I've not seen the, the last one, the, what they say is going to be the final one, or the Hispanic spin-off, which just don't really understand that one. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, they, they kind of... I liked two and three and four to an extent. I thought they were okay films, but they didn't have anything like the effect that the first one did on me. Yeah, the yeah, the they, I, yeah I scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first one scared me as well at the time, um, and it seems really strange to admit that because I'm the same. I don't get freaked out by horror films anymore. You know, there's it's just strange because it did have such a like impact. I was like. Okay, I've watched this on my own in the house. No one else is around. It's getting dark. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to watch something else to take my mind off mm. it because it just it freaks you the fuck out. And the fact that it was, you know, this is one of those interesting things about Paranormal Activity. It wasn't made by a big studio. You know, it got distributed by uh, who was it? Paramount, I think, who distributed mm. Paranormal Activity. And that's because they bought the rights to it to to sort of send it around. It was made for $15,000, just an independent little film. And it was, it's made $193 million. That's, $193 million. That's just, a, it's an obscene amount of money anyway. But for a film that costs that much, I mean, it's no surprise that so many sequels were spurned. Yeah. Really. Mm. But I like the sequels. I think I've. I can't remember whether I reviewed the last one on the podcast or not. But, you know, all the last film served to do, really, was just bookend the story. Because the first one is just about it being scary, because you don't know what's going on. Mm. You don't understand it. They, they had about three different endings to the film, so they could just cho- pick and choose if they were going to carry on as a Yeah, there's no, there's no real... It's a self-contained plot, the first one. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just a haunted house, isn't it? 
and then yeah. the the rest of them serve to try and uh, enhance the mythology behind it and perhaps lost a bit of what made it scary. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. it's the unknown. It was the fear of the unknown. Mm. Um, but I, th- I like them. I think they, I, I enjoyed the series as a whole. I've rewatched the first four a couple times each. Mm. Um, and they, they do lose a bit. Of, I mean, the first one now I could just, you know, watch on my own in the middle of the night and no one else in the house and all the lights off or whatever. And it would be fine. Just mm. wouldn't find it scary. But that's just because, you know, how horror films work, really. The only other sort of modernish horror film I can think that had a similar effect it was the fourth kind the kind of alien abduction one there was some there's a couple of scenes in that that sound really really creepy and hmm. I'm not sure I've seen the fourth kind set in, set in Alaska I think it is um, okay and it's about it's kind of an alien abduction um horror film mm-hmm. um and I thought that was that that was really good. It came out around the same time as um, Paranormal Activity. Yeah. Um, the first thing we watched, we watched Paranormal Activity in the cinema, and there's one moment. I think it was the end scene, you know, where the the female character like leaps at the screen, and there's a girl sat a few rows behind us, and she went, "Oh fucking hell!" <laughs> like scream first, like she screamed like yeah. really loud, high pitched, girly scream. Oh fucking hell! <laughs> it kind of took the edge off a little bit. Yeah, I bet. Uh, well, I really like horror film audiences. They're a strange bunch, mm. the cinema goers. When you've got proper good horror films, um, things that are a little bit odd that aren't your typical Lionsgate um, movies made by accountants sort of thing that you know Paul yeah. the Booker tense, always... tense moment, tense moment, jump scare, tense moment, tense moment, jump scare. Tense... Yeah, when it's not that Luke's of the pattern, monster. Yeah. When you... When you get the good atmospheric horror films, the audiences for those are great because everyone's in on it. Everyone knows mm. what to expect. They're not there waiting for something to come from behind the curtain and go, boom! Yeah. You know? When you get the fucking paranormal activity sequels or the insidious films or the sinister films mm. or, you know, fucking, what was that thing with the the doll in it? The, the boy or something like that. Yeah. Those audiences are horrendous to watch films with. Usually it's like 14-year-old girls who come in groups and just talk all the way f- through the film and try to outdo each other by screaming at bits. And it's just, oh, God. Yeah, those are, that's a shame. That ruins them for yeah. me. Because you're meant to watch horror films in like an intimate environment, aren't you? You're meant to yeah. feel the chill. You're not, you're not really meant to watch them in a, in a big multiplex screen, I suppose, are you? Not good ones. No. Not good ones, yeah. So, I, yeah, it really... It's a shame. I would prefer, much prefer to go and see these films, like with maybe two or three other people, um, or at least if they just made eighteen-rated films, so these kids can't come into the screening. I would enjoy that more. Yeah. Mm. Um, what's your final film? Uh, yeah. So, like I say, my final choice is a bit predictable at this point um, because I've talked about it so many times. But it's a field in England, so I'm not going to go over again in as much detail but uh, i watched high rise this week which is ben wheatley's um most recent film and high rise was first two-thirds good second half final third was a bit too impenetrable too i mean it was 
I mean, yeah, it was it was hard to decipher. Whereas a field in England has the same thing. It's, a field in England's quite open to interpretation. But I love a field in England. I absolutely adore this film. The way it looks, the atmosphere, uh, the confusing psychedelic visuals, uh, the hilarious dialogue. I really do think it's a very funny film. And, uh, of course, fantastic performances from the five strong cast. So, uh, well, six, I think. If you include a cameo from Julian Barrett at the start, who's in it for about 30 seconds, um, you've got Peter Ferdinando, who is also in High Rise, as it happens, um, Richard Glover, Ryan Pope, and Reese Shearsmith, uh, who are wandering around a field, as you might have guessed from the title, uh, escaping the English Civil War before unearthing an Irish sorcerer. Played by Michael Smiley. And yeah, I just fucking love this film. I love the music. Uh, it's got that old Eng- English folky style lilt with a trippy, uh, echoey, modern feeling to it. And it's it's just excellent. I think I've seen it four or five times. And with each watch, I learn something new about the film. Uh, I still don't think I'll ever fully understand it. And I hope I never do fully understand it because... It means each time I rewatch it, and I will rewatch it again and again and again, I'll find something else in there that I hadn't picked up on before. It's basically a field in England. I know how you feel about it, Steve, but it's become my go-to film. Right. These days. So when I want a quick 90-minute movie to pass the time with, it's it's what I pick. But I, I, that makes it sound a bit shallow, I guess, or a bit hollow or empty. But it isn't. It's dense. That's why I, I like enjoying... Uh, rewatching it because it is dense and it's interesting, it's entertaining, it's mesmerizing, and it's just fucking excellent. It's yeah, one of my favorite ever films. Each to their own. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I understand it's not for everyone. That's why movies are subjective and all that jazz. But yeah, I just think it's brilliant. I think it really is a, an underappreciated gem. It looks stunning as well. It's in most, mostly in black and white, but it's just a beautiful film. Um, I My final film is one from this year, and it's uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Oh, God, yeah. With, I completely forgot that. With a cast of uh, just, th- well, four, technically maybe five. Bradley Cooper does a voice of somebody on the phone who's in it a little bit. Uh, does he? Yes, he is. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, Ben, who is um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Um, That's that's Bradley Cooper. And then there's the woman who starts banging on the glass from outside who who melts or whatever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I thought, I mean, I'm still unsure on the last 20 minutes or so where it ties into the original Cloverfield film. Um, Still not sure on that bit, but everything before that is just a fantastic, tense film um, obviously for those who don't know uh, it is um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character he's in a car accident and he's taken in by John Goodman's character Howard who has got an underground bunker and tells her that um, basically he can't leave the bunker because something's happened and he never makes it clear what perhaps he doesn't know himself uh, or we and we never we never know until the end whether he's telling the truth or not but he makes out that something's happened in the world that means they can't leave the bunker 
uh, it's unsafe to leave the bunker, the air is unsafe outside or whatever. Um, but he's got a very he's one of these survivor lifts, he's got a well stop bunker, but you're also never sure of his motives. And there's also um another another guy in there called Emmett. Um yeah, and it's just it's just such a tense and really good film. Like I say, I'm still unsure on those twenty minutes. I don't I'm still not sure if they work or not within the context of tying it into the Cloverfield universe but while they're in the bunker and her, and then when she's trying to escape it's just great, you're not, you're not quite sure for a lot of the film mm. if mm. if John Goodman's character, he's a good guy who's just a bit odd or if he's lying to kind of kidnap her and keep her there against her will or you know if he's telling the truth or not, John Goodman's great in this. He is, he is. he's really good yeah. isn't he? Um, yeah, I I I loved it from the, you know, it's it's very rare that you walk out the cinema with a smile on your face, especially for a film that you don't know too much about. They marketed this really well because they basically didn't market it at all, did they? It was really low key. Mm. Um, there was no kind of it was. build up it... to it, uh, and then it was sort of like here it is, and then there were a kind of you know, well, it is kind of a sequel to Cloverfield, but it's in the same universe. Well, it's a it's a spiritual sequel, and then you kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Um, Thematic, I think, yes. is the word. Yeah. It basically, yeah, it ties in. I mean, you you can't really say how it ties in without revealing some detail. Yeah. So, yeah, thematically, it's probably the best way. And you know, it's the same kind of uh, escaping something vibe. You know. But yeah, yeah, I I like the final act. I think it's good. I enjoyed it. It was uh, it was different to what was making the film so good up to that point. Mm. Um, and there was a certain inevitability about how it was going to play out. But it was done well. It was done really well. I think it it was, um, yeah, one of the, the, the those underground hits that... And I'm saying strange to call it an underground hit because it was in the cinema and we're talking about it now, and so it can't be that underground because it's only, like, three months old. But... It it yeah you're right there was no advertising for it I think J J Abrams who produced it managed to keep it quite under wraps that it was Cloverfield too in a sense um, yeah it's a good film I'm sure when when once it comes out on you know Netflix or VOD or whatever people are gonna pick it up again and realise actually yeah, it was a really good film. Um, Should we have our final listener questions then, Steve? Go on then. We've got a few more to rattle through before we leave. Um, okay, so another uh, guest of the podcast in the past, uh, and also runs his own black hole media, and was on Quizcast not two weeks ago. He uh, Tony Black at Mister underscore Tony underscore Black on Twitter. He asks, "Who's the greater fool?" The Fool or The Fool Who Follows Him? Bonus points if you know who asked it and what film. Do you know who asked it and what film? I do. Do you? Mm. I had to look up the film. Sorry, Tony. But Steve, who is it? It's it's Star Wars. Star Wars Mm -hmm. 4, A New Hope. uh, And it was asked by Obi-Wan Kenobi to, in the general direction of Han Solo. Yep. Um, There you go. Bonus uh, points to you for that then. And... Who is more foolish? The fool, uh, the fool who follows him, obviously. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what the answer is because the question's somewhat rhetorical mm. and implies that it knows the answer already, which is that the, the second fool, the follower, yeah. is the greatest fool. Yeah. Because, but, you know, so maybe the person who asks the question they already know the answer to is the greatest fool. Mm. Mm. But, yeah, sorry, Tony, I didn't get the reference. I did have to Google it, but Steve's there. Star Trek, loving Steve, mm. who's abandoned Star Wars. Maybe. Depending mm. on what the the space fud's actual rules are. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So on to our um, was it what's this question? This is the fifth question that we've had. Sixth question. Sixth question. This is from Phil Sharman from Wiki Shuffle at P E Sharman. If you've not listened to Wiki Shuffle before, find them. It's a really funny, interesting, entertaining podcast. Um, and that reminds me, actually, they won. At the UK Podcaster Awards last year, best comedy podcast, and I think voting is out again. Nominations are open for the this year's UK Podcaster Awards. And they were very liberally in the comedy podcast section. So if you want to vote for us as best comedy podcast, then <laughs> go for it. Yeah, I don't because we won't stand a chance against uh, against Wicked Shuffle. They're very funny. Um, not that you're not funny, Steve. Of no. course, I'm just saying, you know. They're already champions. I mean, um, I would go as far to say is that Wiki Shuffle is the best podcast out there about random Wikipedia articles. It truly is. It I truly can't is. say fairer than that. Exactly. It's very generous. Mm. Um, it's also the worst podcast on that subject, by, by promise, <laughs> but uh, we won't dwell yeah. on that. No, no. Um, I'm, okay, I'm so just going to we'll... keep being spiteful until they invite me on as a guest like they did with you. No one, I ever, being a guest no one on ever there. wants me as a guest on their podcast. You, uh, you've you done Pick a Flick, haven't you? Yeah, I suppose I did, yeah. did Pick a Flick. I you put, just I put, yourself I, out I there, I put Steve. my name down for that, though. I didn't get sort of asked to do it out of the blue, you know. Yeah, but see, I kind of... I was, I wasn't, I'm not going to say net... That's a horrible word. I'm, I didn't network with these people. I didn't network with them. I didn't go to conferences and bump fists and whatever. I... Um, just met them online, mostly from reviewing films. I think Tony I met from Letterboxd. I, um, I think because I have probably 500 podcasts under my belt now, they're just intimidated by me. I'm like the, yeah, I'm like the, um, the don of uh, amateur podcasting. <laughs> well, you know, maybe you can check it if Space Buds will have you. Space Buds. You need to find out what they're all about, don't we? We should, mm. we should. In fact, before we go, I'll find out, I'll check them out and say, we'll give them a plug, because we, I don't mean to say like we're taking the piss, we're not. And we'll stop, we'll stop calling them space buds. Yeah. They're, what they call them, Steve? Cosmic something. <laughs> the cosmic Cosmic something. potato. Exactly, the cosmic potato podcast. Um, yeah, so should I tell you what Steve, uh, no, you're Steve, should I tell you what Phil asked, Stephen? Go on then. Okay, so Phil said, I would be very interested if you could please rank the Police Academy films in order of preference. So, Steve, Mm. order of preference. I mean, they all go a bit shit, Mission to Moscow onwards, don't they? I think Mission to Moscow is the last one, isn't it? Let's have a little look at what we've got. I, ha- I did have a look online earlier to see well, how many Police Academy films there there's are. There's seven. There's seven of them, yeah. 
released over a ten-year so, period. So you've got uh, Police Academy, uh, mm-hmm. first assignment, back in training, citizens on patrol, assignment Miami Beach, un- city under siege, and mission to Moscow. So mission to Moscow is indeed the last one. Yeah. So they probably do go a bit shit. Mission to Moscow onwards. They 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 go shit. I think from assignment. Police Academy onwards. Well, yes. Mm. I did. Did he give his give us his um. His reckon what his order was? He did not. I I just, didn't get them. I wouldn't want to rank them. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what struck me was the fact that there were seven over a ten-year period, nineteen eighty-four to ninety-four. Um, and you know, there was a time when I thought seven movies in a single series—not even—I wouldn't have called it a franchise—would be fucking ridiculous. You know, you look at um. Nightmare on Elm Street, or Halloween, or Friday the 13th and Child's Play, all those sort of, those franchises, those film series, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, there's not a sustained period of quality amongst them. But now, it seems unusual for a franchise to kind of stop a trilogy. It's the norm for them to keep going. Star Wars is back, it's had its seventh film. Rocky, Fast and Furious, uh, you know, and obviously the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. And they absolutely rake in the cash. They just generate huge sums of money. But, you know, I suppose that's not really answering Phil's question, is it? No. No. I don't think I've seen a full Police Academy film since I was a kid. I've not seen enough of them or them recently enough to rank them, Phil. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I don't have any... Me- Do you have any memory of them? Do you remember just them? Just the guys who done sound effects. Just the guy who did say that exactly. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, so I can't put them in any no. order either. Well, that's not true. I can put them in an order. I just can't put. You know, maybe I can put them in chronological order. Phil, what's your order? Yeah, what we can't do is rank them in order of preference. No. Although I guess we can do that as well, just not in terms of quality of the film. Hmm. You know, you can rank them by their titles. No, we'll, we'll just move on. Yeah, I quite like Citizens on Patrol. It seems like it'd be a bit of fun. Operation Miami Beach would be the best one. You reckon? Yeah. City Under Siege is probably the best. You know, that, makes it seem like a death I wish. I think sequel. it goes a bit dark there. Yeah. It's quite, a group it's, of uh, vigilantes joining up with Charles Bronson. Yeah. Yeah. It's called for backup from his ex-police chums from the academy. Mm. So it's just Bronson, uh, Hightower, and Bobcat Goldthwait. Mm. As they machine gun down an alley full of rapists and paedophiles. That's a bit dark, isn't it? That'll do. Yeah. That'll do. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Either that or their assignment takes place entirely on a Navy boat with a jazz saxophonist who's a chef and knows Kung Fu. Mm. That sounds appropriate. Yeah. There we go. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know why I'd rank them in order. City Under Siege first because it seems like a Death Wish sequel and the rest who gives a fuck. Uh, but Matt Latham sort of asks a follow-up question to that, so I think our answer is going to be brief. What model of caravan would suit each of the Police Academy characters? As the expert that we've already established, Steve, what type of caravan? Or mobile home, if you prefer, or static static home, which would suit each of the Police Academy characters? Um, I'd just get the one they could all stay in together, and that means the question has only got to have one answer. You could charge them more individually, though, if you put them into... I'm all about customer comfort, mate, not You not are, profit. yeah, I can tell. 
Yeah. I'm a people person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I, this is a really good opportunity to ask us some good questions, and, and they've not. <laughs> they've not. It's disappointing. I misled people, I think. Because I just, like, introduced this. I said to people, you know, you can ask us questions about anything. Um, you know, and I just thought, if you want to ask Steve about caravans, you can. And so, obviously, three questions came about because mm. of because of that. So, I'm afraid it misled them. Well, they've, they've missed an opportunity there. Yeah. Are there any particularly high-roofed static caravans you could suggest for high tower? Not particularly. They're all quite standard. Yeah. What about ones with like soundproof walls? Are there any with very thick walls no. for a guy who has to practice making noises? No, all day? they're made of they're made of cardboard. Yeah, the sheds, mm. sheds with a bucket, three, or a hole. three fab sheds, yeah, and a bucket under the hole. Oh no, they have proper toilets in now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. What's the... Do you want the last question? It's not caravan related. Uh, it's from Andrew Brooker at Brooker four one one. He said, "If you ever." No, he didn't. He said, have you ever had your asshole licked by a fat man in an overcoat? And I said on Twitter to Brooker, it sounds like an invitation more than it does a genuine question. And you know where I live, Brooker? Or rather, I know where you live. Sort of. Just sounds, and sounds rather specific. It does, doesn't it? It's a very, like, on-point question there from Brooker. Have you ever had your asshole licked by a fat man in an overcoat? No, I haven't. No, no, me neither. No. No. Um, should we, um, should we move... I will. I will pop by shortly, Brooker. I'll be there soon. Oh yeah, sorry. We did have another question, which was from um, Brooker's uh, wife, uh, Maya Brooker. She said, uh, "I think mine would be which is your favourite book to film adaptation and why? Which did you prefer, the book or film?" This is putting you on the spot because we didn't prepare this one. Yeah, and I don't. So much uh, as like had a chance to think about I it. I don't read because reading's for losers. You read The Martian, though, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. Let's go with that, then. <laughs> the Martian. This, um, Jurassic Park? Yeah. That was a good... That's probably cannot, a good book, cannot, better film. I cannot find... Because apparently the book is really good. You can't get it on a Kindle. Jurassic Park? Mm. Really? You get the sequel, The Lost World. You can download that onto a Kindle, I think. Uh, or other devices are available. But Yeah, but that's... But, shit. but the, origi- the original, Jurassic Park, you can't. And it's really difficult to find in paperback or form as well. I got a copy of it for 50p from a charity shop. Mm. And the first time I read it, I got it out of a library. It can't be that difficult. Well, we'll beg to differ. <laughs> what's yeah. what's your one? Um, well, I was thinking Jurassic Park would be the one that I think is a better film than it is a book. I was trying to think of others like that because it's difficult. Because usually it's the book that's better than the film, isn't it? Book, you know, if you think of I Am Legend, any of the numerous film adaptations, the book is just far superior. Oh, Richard Matheson's book, Harry Potter, because it's over quicker if you watch the film. <laughs> yeah, but they're still very long, aren't they? Yeah. There's um, The Road, Cormac McCarthy, mm. I think is a, a good book, but his his prose, his style of writing was very jarring to me. I had great difficulty in not flinging it out of a window whilst reading it. And I enjoyed th- I enjoyed the story, I in, in so much as you can enjoy the road, but I thought the film was better as well. Mm-hmm. And World War Z, or Z, wherever you're from, um, I thought the film was much more preferable to 
Max Brooks writing, which I literally came close to chucking out of a bus window in I, motion. I, Instead, I decided I was going to give it away. I don't, I, I don't agree with you on that one. Um, the book is written like a 14-year-old prepubescent fuckwit. That's probably why I liked it. <laughs> um, oh, I just hated it. It's just such a fucking... It's so rich boy pretending to be journalist. That's all it is. I despised the writing of World War Z. I, and I wish I liked it because the concept was great. But the film even was not good. The film was all right. Um, anyway, we, we're going to move on quickly to our recommendations for the week ahead before we clear off. I'm going for Thursday night um, on ITV4, 25 to 1 on Friday morning, technically, and that's Escape from New York. You're going to recommend 25 to 1. Is that the old show? Uh, Sorry? Well, that was a game show. That wasn't 25 to 1, was it? That was 15, 5 to 1. 15 to 15 1. 15 to 1. Yeah, I thought that's what you were going to recommend then. No. You said 25. No. Oh. Oh, okay. I have been watching a TV series. Which I'm going to recommend. I recommended a TV series last week, which was uh, Flower or Flowers with um, Julian Barra and Olivia Coleman. This week I'm recommending something completely different. Uh, I Zombie, which has been added to Netflix fairly recently, and it's actually pretty decent. It's kind of fun. Um, I mean, it's nothing to shout about so much, but it's it's entertaining. It's enjoyable. It's each episode's about sort of forty forty five minutes. As an easy-to-watch sort of mystery comedy drama goes, it's fine. It's it's highly enjoyable. I had the comic years ago or whenever. It, yeah, it might have been 2010, 2011 when that came out. And that made it seem very much like Scooby-Doo um, with this zombie woman who has a werewolf friend and a ghost friend and they go around solving crimes. I Zombie is... Um, Thankfully, different, because that would not have worked on TV. It's just about this girl who's become a zombie, but in order to keep eating brains, she works in a morgue. And every time she eats the brains of someone who's in the morgue, she has visions about what happened to them. And so with her police friend goes about trying to solve the mystery and the riddles. It's 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 decent. You might like it, Steve. I don't know. Have you considered giving it a go? Because I know you're into zombie stuff as well. No, not really seen anything about that, but you should still watch well, um, Z Nation. I haven't. Yeah, I've only watched the first episode of that. Just stick with it. It's great. Okay. Um, well, that that is all for, for this week's Failed Critics podcast. Uh, even though it's just the two of us, we've managed to go on for nearly two hours, I think. So we're probably all mm-hmm. bored to death of us by now. Um, but thank you all for listening. Next back, we'll be back with a with a guest, I think, and, and some other film stuff. Yeah, I think Brooke is back next week. Right. So, um, yeah, but we've also... Um, uh, shit, I've forgotten what I was going to say. We've got something coming up soon. But I can't remember what it is. My holiday. We do have your holiday coming yeah, up. Yeah, so you're missing me for a couple of podcasts, so that, you know, don't be too upset about it. Yeah, but thanks to everyone who sent in questions to us as well. We appreciate it, you know. We always do these things a bit late, with like a day to go or Yeah, less. we really appreciate it, Paul. Yeah, Steve absolutely adored those caravan questions. And you can find him, what, what are you on Twitter, Steve? At, at Failed at Steve. Failed Steve. Yeah, so if you want to know more, you know, the best static, the best towable, 
I don't know what the term is. Towable? Touring. 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 You know, it's all about it's the caravansy. You know, there you go. Find him on Twitter and you can ask him directly next time. Yes, you can. Don't expect an answer. The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FailedCritics. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.